Hello, and welcome to Why Do We Do That, a psychology podcast that deconstructs human behavior from the perspectives of social scientists, psychologists, and others that use applied psychology in their work. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Moyer. In this episode, I sit down with Dr. Ryan Sherman. Ryan earned his PhD in personality psychology from the University of California, Riverside. Uh, Ryan was also an associate professor at Florida Atlantic University and Texas Tech University before transitioning into the private sector. He is now the chief science officer at Hogan Assessment Systems, where he leads a team that designs and implements personality assessments to serve large companies around the globe. Ryan and I had an in-depth conversation about effective leadership. And if there's one feeling I got from my discussion with him, it is that effective leadership seems, to me at least, to be pretty rare. Uh, even though we can quantify all of these characteristics associated with effective leaders, it really takes a special person to put everything together and to embody all of these traits. Now, I can safely say that I've never had a bad boss, um, but, I've, but I've also never had an incredible charismatic leader to work with. Um, and I'm sure if you personally think about conversations you've had with your friends um, about their about the leaders that they work with, typically you tend to hear complaints uh, a lot more than praise for for uh, individuals, bosses or managers or leaders. Um, perhaps if there is one thing that you can take home from this episode, it's the ability to pinpoint areas of opportunity for the leaders in your life, specifically where you would like them to improve or where you need them to improve in order to make your work experience a little bit more palatable. There's nothing wrong with coaching up leaders as long as you do it in the right way. Um, you know, you don't want to kick open the door and, and give them a list of demands. Obviously, that's that's not going to work, but I think if you are very mindful of their feelings and their backgrounds um, and, and perhaps gain a little bit of insight before you approach them about why they are the way that they are, um, I think that it's, it's feasible to uh, be able to have an effective conversation with them about, about uh, what, would, what the changes that they could make uh, to make your life a lot easier. And if you're afraid of this process, just ask yourself, what is the alternative? Because the alternative is that you don't speak up and that you uh, essentially just tolerate or, or put up with uh, poor leadership uh, indefinitely. And that is not a recipe for long-term success uh, or long-term well-being at any job. So let's get right into it. I hope you enjoy it. All right. I am here with Ryan Sherman. Thank you for joining me today. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure, Ryan. Thanks a lot for uh -huh. having me on the, on the podcast today. Great. Um, so uh, for the past few years, you've been doing a lot of work uh, looking at leadership, looking at uh, what factors are associated with uh, effective leadership uh, and also personality traits associated with effective leaders. Um, could you first just give an overview 
about how one goes about measuring leadership preferences? Yeah, so so leadership, uh, well, I, I want to start out by saying leadership, I think, is a really critical and important topic. Um, I think for a lot of people, that's obvious. Um, but for some people, it may not seem so obvious. Um, you know, leadership is really critical for, for group functioning. And, and as, as you know, and as I'm guessing most of your audience knows, um, group functioning is essential for humans, right? The individual human is pretty pathetic on its own. We don't have uh, sharp teeth. We don't have sharp claws. We're not very fast compared to other animals in the animal kingdom. Um, so what we do really well is we get together in groups and we can coordinate really well. And leadership is really about that. Is that about, it's about coordinating groups and coordinating group function. And so when we're talking about identifying leaders or identifying leadership qualities or leadership potential, I mean, that's a really important part of what groups do is, you know, it's critical for the group's survival is to select a leader who can help them make those critical decisions about what to do, how to coordinate, where we should go, you know, historically speaking, it'd be things like where to hunt for food, uh, who to go to war with, things like that. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm really interested in, in, uh, in, in the, the idea of measuring leadership through asking individuals what they find effective in, in a leader, mainly because I'm, I'm sort of curious if, if there is a, a discrepancy between what people say they want in a leader and what's actually effective in a leader in the same way that with with mate preferences, someone might say, this is, this is what I'm attracted to on paper, but then when you see them a week later, they're dating someone that's completely different. Uh, so in terms of what you've seen, in terms of like how you measure leadership through self-report or through other means, uh, is there any evidence of that? Do you see any discrepancies or is it pretty much consistent? No, there's, there's actually some pretty big discrepancies. So when, when we, there's actually several different lines of research on leadership that have, that have pointed at this. And, and if you sort of put them all together, it kind of makes sense. So lots of research on leadership, particularly the academic study of leadership has said, okay, we want to study leadership. I know what we'll do. Let's go find a bunch of people who are leaders and measure things about them, how tall they are, how strong they are, how broad their jaw is, um, you know, then they'll measure their personality characteristics, things like that. And, and that all seems fine, but the problem is they, uh, they assume that because you're in a leadership position that you're good at it. Remember I said earlier that the goal of leadership is to coordinate a group, coordinate a team. Um, that's what a good leader does. Um, but getting into a leadership position doesn't really require you to be good at that. It just requires you to be good at getting into a leadership position. And so this is where these discrepancies really start to emerge. So some people are really good at getting in leadership positions and some people are really good at leading. And so when we look at, um, and there's about 10% overlap there, by the way, there's, there's, you know, some people are good at both, but, not, but not very many. Um, and, when we start to look at what do people say they want in a leader, some of those characteristics really match that first group who's really good at getting into leadership positions. We call these emergent leaders or leadership emergence. Some of those characteristics really fit on that. And some of the characteristics really fit on what we call leadership effectiveness. I'll give you an example. So, so one is integrity. Everybody says they want a boss, right? So you, you can ask questions like, you know, tell me about your best boss ever, the best boss you ever had. And integrity always comes up as really critical, right? So this is people who tell the truth, they're honest, they don't double deal, 
Um, they, they give credit where credit is due, that sort of thing. Um, they hold other people accountable, right? So if people are slacking off, you know, they, they, so that's all integrity. Everybody says they want that in their leader. And that turns out to predict leadership effectiveness, again, defined as how well the team does, how well this team's coordinated, how successful the team is. That predicts leadership effectiveness really well. But then there's other things that people say that they want are leaders, or at least um, implicitly say that they want a leaders, even if they don't explicitly say it, right? So they, they say it through their votes, they say it through their preferences. Um, you know, and that, that includes things like charm, big vision um, for what the future is gonna look like, lots of promises, and, and you know, not to harbor on something that's so you know, uh, relevant in the American mind right now, but with election season coming up, um, you know, one of the things that we see in politicians is that, that leadership emergence, those kinds of qualities, that charm, that charisma. Um, I think if you go back in the last, well, all the elections in my lifetime, if we go back in those, um, the, the more charismatic candidate has won every single election. And that says something about people's preferences for leadership. So we, we were choosing charisma. And what's really interesting is that charisma is the absolute great predictor at getting into leadership positions, but it's not at all associated with being effective at coordinating a group or a team. Yeah. My, my, my first thought when you said that was um, if, if you look at, I, I mean, I'm, I'm fairly cynical about politics. And if, if I were to look at the types of people that we elect as our, as our leaders in, in whether it's uh, the national or the state level, I look at them and I think to myself, I, a, a lot of the, the smart people, the empathetic people that I know would never even run for office. And the people that I see in office are, they, they, air, they, they tend to, to be a little bit on the narcissistic side. Um, and it, that was, you know, the, the political world seems like the perfect example of how you would have someone elected into leadership, but that doesn't have all the qualities that you would want. Yeah. And I mean, Plato talked about this too. And in, in Plato's Republic, I mean, he was talking about what, what, you know, what is the ideal leader? And he, and he was right. He was saying that the ideal leader is pretty much someone who doesn't want to lead someone who um, feels compelled to lead only because the alternative is somebody terrible leading. Right. So they're sort of like, okay, I guess I'll do it only because I don't want so-and-so to ruin everything. Um, so it's are, that are kind we, of person is ideal. Are, then are, are we missing something? Like, in other words, is it even, it, what is our target then for an ideal scenario of pushing people to leadership positions? Should we force people that are, that, that have all these great traits into leadership positions or do we somehow coach up the ones that end up there? Well, yeah, that's a really good, good question. And I think that the, um, you know, the data are pretty much in support of what we need to do is a better job of identifying high potential leaders and getting them into those, compelling them to be in those positions. Um, you know, there is some, we, we do a lot of work on leadership development uh, where, where I work, but um, you know, that can only take you so far. That's, that's what the reality is, um, is that you can change these behaviors. You can change those things in, in subtle ways. Um, but making dramatic shifts and sort of the, the person's core motives is, is really difficult to do. And um, so, uh, you know, I advise companies, I advise people all the time that you're way better off um, 
in terms of your return on investment um, on that selection side, you know, working hard on selecting better leaders than uh, working hard on developing leaders. That doesn't mean you shouldn't develop leaders. I mean, there's certainly value in doing that, but the, in terms of bang for your buck, you're better off at, at, at trying to select people who have, who have that potential. And, and if I can add one more thing there, Ryan, I think one of the really critical things that we see with organizations, and so we're talking about politics, but the same kind of politics, so to speak, happen inside business organizations all the time, right? The people who get chosen to be leaders get promoted. It's, it's the very similar kind of politics that we see um, among elected officials. But um, what's really essential is, is having a way to evaluate who would be an effective leader um, that takes that sort of charisma and that sort of charm out of the picture. Yeah, so we're definitely gonna circle back to talk about, about assessments in companies. I definitely wanna touch on that. Um, but you mentioned in integrity uh, is uh, one of the key traits associated with effective leadership. What are, some other, uh, what are some other traits that you've seen that have been associated with effective leaders? Yeah, so here uh, we've actually done quite a bit of research. Again, this is where, sadly, you know, the academic study of leadership has sort of failed in this regard. Um, you can go read reviews of leadership and academic, and it's all different theories. Like, well, there's transformational, and there's transactional, and there's all these different kinds of leaders. And they all sort of imply that these are all strengths or, or that these are all good, effective ways to lead. But they don't really say, like, this is what effective leaders look like. And so we've had to sort of cull together lots of different pieces of information. And, and when we have looked at all these different sources and said, okay, what do effective leaders actually do? We've come up with six things. And the first one I mentioned already was, is integrity. The second one is competence. You kind of have to know like the business that you're in. Um, so if you're um, the CEO of a, of a, of a, a motor vehicle company, you ought to know something about cars. You ought to know something about how they run, how they work. Um, if you're the head coach of a football team, you ought to know something about football, right? I can't just be like, I can't take the CEO of Ford and put him in front of the, the Denver Broncos and lead to a Super Bowl, right? It just, they don't know anything about the business that they're in. So you really need to know something about the business that you're in. Uh, the number three thing is decision-making. And, you know, the, the, the big picture here is that we're going to make a lot of bad decisions um, and, and uh, everybody's going to make bad decisions when, when you do, when you, anytime you're in a business, you're, you're going to make some, some decisions that are wrong. What's important is that you make the best possible decision with the information in front of you and you do so in a relatively speedy manner. That doesn't mean you do it super fast, but it, where we see lots of mistakes happen is people who are just too reluctant to make a decision. Well, we need to wait. We need to wait for more data. We need to wait for more information to come in. And so what people want and effective, what effective leaders do is they make decisions on the best available information they've got and they make them relatively quickly. But most importantly, they learn from those mistakes, right? Because they're going to make mistakes when they make those decisions and it's how they react to those um, that, that's really important. And then... I'm going to jump into the fourth one. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, let, uh, let's sure. stay on decision-making for, for yeah. one second. So uh, in, in my experience in the corporate world, one thing that you tend to see is the sort of sandwich effect where you, where you have uh, in the middle, you have a, a leader, whether it be a director uh, or, or a senior manager. When it, when, when it, in, in terms of how they would please the people that report to them, 
the people that report to them want to slow down, be cautious, right? Uh, be measured with what they communicate. Oftentimes they're the subject matter experts in some area. Then above them are the vice presidents and other, you know, executive level leadership. And from the top to that middle person, it's all about speed. And then from the bottom up, right, the bottom up is where the reason lies. And then the speed and hurry up, let's make a decision um, that comes from the top. Um, in terms of like, in terms of your opinion, like how does that, uh, what would you, what would you say is the best approach for that person in the middle there? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's, that's always really tricky. Um, in fact, this is some of the research we have, we, we find that this is where, um, in many respects, lots of leaders get stuck because you, for a couple of reasons. One, so there's some research showing that really effective managers at that level, that is their teams perform really well, um, get overlooked by their, uh, by, by their superiors, right? They don't do a good job of managing up. That is what, what they do a really good job of managing down, keeping their, their, um, their, their team going, keeping their team motivated, getting really productive results. But then what they do is something that we think is really important is they end up sharing that the credit for those results. They end up saying, well, you know, I have a great team. I have a great staff. That's why we're so successful. And um, the upper management looks at that and says, well, yeah, that's true. And that's it. And then, whereas there's this other group of leaders in that middle group, that's uh, much more like those emergent leaders we talked about before who are really good at managing up. So they, you know, um, they're always sort of touting their accomplishments. Look how well I did. Look how great I'm doing. Um, I think I should really get the next, the next level up. And, and they're really good at, at playing those organizational politics. And so um, this, this is why I think it's so challenging, um, I, I think, for, for organizations, because you see the people who sort of strike you as real go-getters, really enthusiastic, really charming, really um, promising, and, and even high potential. That, that, that group who's really good at managing up is seen as super high potential. And this other group gets looked over. So, I mean, it, in an ideal world, it would be that second group or, or that, that group of um, really effective managers who, who they're the ones that are doing the right thing, that are spending their time, um, you know, managing their team and keeping that team being effective. And, and I think in terms of decision making, that means um, they are um, doing what that would making the, the decisions, just as I said before, but uh, we're, we're working within that team scope, right? Um, without dealing with the pressure that's coming from the top. Yeah, I'm glad that I'm glad that you said that that this sort of decisiveness is a is a trait that is seen in effective leaders, uh, because uh, I would think I, I would be worried that um, that people that report to their leader or uh, working under a leader. Um, I, I would think that the that leaders would be terrified of making a wrong decision, and that would be that would trump making any decision. But what you're saying is that it, it, it you would say it is it's okay to make the wrong decision, but you you have to you have to make it within that window so that you're not drawing it out too long. Yeah, and I mean you can certainly make mistakes both ways, right? So we've, we've probably all known people who make decisions way too quickly, way too. I had a friend once who, uh, you know, uh, she 
uh, said, well, I'm in love with this guy. So now I'm moving to, to Oregon and, you know, I'm packing all my things and going and she bought plane tickets and movers and all this stuff. And then like two days, and this is after seeing somebody for like a month and then like uh, two days before the big move, that's it. We broke up, canceled the flight. I mean, thousands of dollars down the drain, this sort of impulse. So we can certainly make decisions um, way too quickly. Um, but, but, uh, I think when we get into the corporate level and people who are at that level, the, the more common error we see at that level is making them too slowly. Okay. Uh, so you mentioned uh, competence uh, and decisiveness. What are some other traits for the effective leader? Yeah. So, so the fourth one we see is a vision. So people want to know if you're on a team, you want to have an idea of where we're going, what's the future going to look like? Um, you know, to, to go back to the 2016 election, I will say this was one major difference between uh, what Donald Trump offered versus what uh, Hillary Clinton offered. You know, you know, Donald Trump had this vision, you know, whether it's true or not, it's really irrelevant, but what he offered was this vision of make America great again. And what Hillary Clinton offered was, um, I don't know, policy. You know, uh, which, you know, just, just not a very exciting vision. Um, and, and so people want that. They want to know where are we going? Where are we headed? Why should I be motivated to, to do this thing? And, and really effective leaders offer that, that vision of the future. Right. So they're basically reducing uncertainty kind of, that's, that sort of makes sense, right? Uh, yes. Any, any, anything that you can, in, in terms of a, a soft skill leader should have is reducing uncertainty and, and fears and anxiety because if you if you can kind of lay out where it's going then then people aren't they're, they're not worried about that they don't have these questions floating around that's that's super interesting yeah and um, then the other the other mm -hmm. two I would add one is that and this is from a, a series of studies done by um, a researcher at Stanford um, uh, Jim Collins uh, he identified really two effective characteristics among high performing CEOs one was just this um, uh, relentless pervasiveness, right? That they're just going to get the job done. They're, they're just not going to quit. They're just going to go for you know, a really long time. So people want a leaders who just work really, really hard, which is not a big surprise. And then number two, and this was the one that was surprising was humility um, is that, um, and this is goes sort of back to the first question. What we talked about is that it turns out that humble leaders are way more effective than the sort of grandiose attention seeking uh, uh, kind of leaders um, in large part because the humble leader motivates people to work for them because they're giving that team credit. Right. So if I'm working with someone who's sort of narcissistic, um, you know, how much of my ideas am I going to share with them? If I think they're just going to steal them, they're just going to take credit for them. Uh, how much am I going to want to work for them if I know that if we, if we fail, if, we're, if we lose, they're going to blame it on me. But if we win, they're going to take all the credit, right? Humble leaders don't do that. Humble leaders give the credit to their team when they succeed. Um, and, and they take the blame for failure, right? They, they put the, 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 the loss on themselves. And people really want to work for somebody like that. Now, a lot of what, what you're saying, you know, makes sense. Uh, in terms of what what these what these traits are, just out of curiosity, have have you seen anything that totally surprised you in terms of you know what what individuals either what they report in what they want in a leader or what they find or what you see as being a, a trait that makes them effective? Well, one of the big ones here, and some people might say, well, geez, you just listed all these great list of positive things, right? Well, let me point out a positive thing that it's not listed. Uh, being nice, being friendly, 
being um, caring and considerate. Uh, is not, uh, although people do report liking that, this is one of those things go, going back to your first question, people do report liking that in their bosses. They want bosses that are friendly and nice, but it, there's no association between that and effectiveness and getting, and getting the job done. Now that doesn't mean you should be mean or cruel, um, but just means that there's really no link between those two. And, and I can give you a really clear example of that is Steve Jobs. Um, sometimes we refer to this as the um, Apple paradox because he was sort of known for being pretty uh, prickly, I think would be putting it nicely, but uh, really quite nasty uh, with other people. But what he offered was extreme competence. Like he really knew what he was doing. He really knew what he was talking about, made good decisions clearly. Um, you know, he didn't, he, he, even though he wasn't very friendly, he didn't, uh, you know, he had integrity. He, he didn't lie to people. He didn't double deal on the side. Um, and then, uh, and then he offered a vision for the future. I mean, that's what so many Apple products were really about was it was about a really compelling vision. And, um, you know, this was, you know, so he really hit a lot of marks on these effective leadership characteristics, but he was not widely considered a nice guy. Yeah, I know, personally, I definitely, uh, I definitely don't mind if someone that I'm working for is is very, you know, using the term nice um i'm i i wonder if there are going to be differences as we have new new generations of people that are entering the workforce um I, i'm wondering your thoughts as to if you think that the profile of the effective leader is going to uh, change over time in the sense that I, I know I've talked to people that um, that employ a, y a younger generation and it's I've, I've been hearing increasingly that that the the work ethic tends to be lacking you have to be um, you have to do a lot more hand-holding which it, it seems like that that may or may not be something that you've seen associated with an effective leader do you think that it's going to change over time or has changed over time? Yeah. So, I mean, what, what we find and what we found is that, uh, that these characteristics of leadership effectiveness have really been around for a, a long time. In fact, a lot of things that I've just said, even though I've used modern terms, if you go back and read some of the classical writings from ancient Greece, you find, oh yeah, they're kind of all in there. I mean, integrity is a really big one that shows up there a lot. Um, so a lot of these things really aren't different. What is different? I think what people talk about, maybe sort of indirectly or not without realizing it, when they talk about, you know, the modern leader and what, how does a modern leader have to do? So there's, there's lots of terms that get used, like digital leaders are really popular one these days. And, and you're saying, well, you know, we need, you know, leaders who can lead in a digital world and, and all that kind of thing. But really what they're getting at there is one of those core characteristics. They're really getting at competence. Um, and that is as technology adapts and changes in the business world or whatever world you're in, um, you know, even in, in the sports world, right? I mean, look at uh, professional football 30 years ago. Look at the sidelines. Look at all of the technology that's on the sidelines today versus 30 years ago. Um, leaders who can't adapt to that, who don't have the competence in that technical, uh, in the, that technical background, the technical knowledge are not going to be as effective. And so I think the answer is, yeah, uh, the sort of um, essential skills and qualities that you'll need to have have changed. But I think at some level, the core, um, the core idea really hasn't. It's really about competence. 
that's uh, so. Uh, let's explore a little bit. You, you mentioned football and, and competence. Um, one 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 of the things that I that I thought of when I was reading some of the material that you gave me uh, to prep was um, was the sports world, different coaches, and uh, one thing that jumped out at me was the vast differences in personality that you see uh, in NFL coaches. You have your you know louder variety. Um, you have your old school, your, your John Gruden, coach of the Raiders. You have the, the, the newer class, the Sean McVay's of the, of the Rams. Um, is there, when you look at, the, at these differences in coaching styles, uh, would you make the argument that the one thing that's consistent is the backbone of these traits that, that you said? Or is it the case that they're just completely different profiles of leaders altogether? Well, I think there's a couple of things. I think from a, from a leadership effectiveness standpoint, it's really the same stuff. Now, I will also say a couple of things. You know, when you get to the, when we're talking about at that level, right? I mean, everybody's good, right? Everybody's competent. Everybody kind of knows what they're talking about. Um, but there are some subtle things that, that, that I think do make a big difference. Um, and I think it's okay to reveal this. We've actually done some work with some NFL teams uh, and actually helped in hiring um, some coaches uh, for, for, for different franchises. And we've done some personality assessments on people who are currently or were uh, recently in some cases, NFL coaches. Um, and there are certainly individual differences there. And it is definitely the case that um, certain people who were put into head coaching roles uh, were really probably not the best fit from a, a personality standpoint. That doesn't mean they shouldn't be, they wouldn't be effective coaches, but they had um, what I would consider profiles that were much more geared towards uh, assistant coaching roles rather than head coaching roles. And part of this is because of, of the, the, the demands on the head coach in, in terms of, um, you know, the, the, the kind of demeanor they need to show and those kinds of things. And, and uh, it's a little different for, for assistant coaches. And, and, and we've, we've seen that in, in the data that we've gotten that um, it really makes a big difference if you get the right one in charge. Um, but to, to, you know, to your sort of specific examples, one of the things that I'll, that I'll say that we, we do see across the board in all these uh, head coaches in the NFL, and I suspect we'll also see this in head coaches in other sports, is this really high, they all score really highly on what we call tradition which is this sort of um, belief in tradition, traditional approaches. This is the way we do things. This is the way we've always done things. Um, sort of a little bit of a resistance to innovation um, or, or not necessarily innovation, but so much as resistance to you know, outside innovation, right? This is our club. We know how this club is run. Um, and that's something that, that we see is remarkably consistent across all, all NFL coaches. And in fact, a lot of athletes as well um, score really high on, on tradition. So I would say sort of to answer your question, there's a lot of broad similarities between these, but there are certainly cases where we go, oh, that was probably not the best choice for a head coaching role. Yeah. And one of the things that I noticed in some of the readings that you gave me, as you mentioned, um, that oftentimes you have, you have individuals that are fantastic at being individual contributors but when you try to transition them into some sort of leadership role, they're not very effective because 
those are, they probably, you know, require two different skill sets. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a couple of times when this, when this happens is, is one, it actually goes back to the thing we, we chatted about before about being nice is that, um, you know, we don't call it niceness in our assessments in the big five assessments. Like I know you've talked about before, um, we call it agreeableness. And in our assessments, we call it interpersonal sensitivity. Um, that is the number one predictor of job performance ratings. So your manager, your supervisor saying, if you do a good job, if you're nice and friendly, you get good ratings. Um, it's, it's also the number one predictor of 360 ratings, which is all of your coworkers and colleagues reporting on you know, how effective they think you are. Being nice and friendly gets you really high, high ratings on that. Um, but it also sometimes gets you promoted to these jobs because, wow, everybody likes that person. Everybody likes Bill, so let's promote Bill. And the problem is, as I mentioned before, it's not really associated with being effective as a leader. So sometimes these things that, that are really good as an individual contributor, everybody wants to work with agreeable people. They're really easy to work with. They get along really well. Um, they create cohesion among groups. Everybody likes them, and, and it's really everybody wants them on their team but um, they're not necessarily the most effective uh, at leading in it. And so it is one of those things that gets you into those leadership positions, but um, doesn't really make you good at leading. But th there's a whole host of others um, uh, that, that, that fall into that category. You know, some individual contributors are just, um, it, it's just that they're really good at doing the thing that they do and they're not really team oriented, right? So they, they're just, uh, um, they're self-performance oriented and, and they might be super high performers. And again, this same group of people gets put into that leadership role because everybody goes, well, you're the best salesperson we've got, uh, Karen. And so Karen gets put in that leadership role, but she's not really um, well suited for building a, a high performing team. Let's go back to your, your comments about uh, being niceness or what, what, what is it in the, uh, in the data? What is niceness? Referred well, to? We call it interpersonal sensitivity. Interpersonal sensitivity. Um, let me, let me play devil's advocate for a second. Suppose that it's not so much that um, niceness is not a trait of an effective leader, but it suppose that just being a nice or being scoring above average on, on this attribute um, has other positive impacts on the team that may not have a one-to-one -one relationship with what you would classically label as effectiveness. Is that, is that a possibility or do you, based on what you've seen? Well, and, and it may be possible. I, like I said, in, in our data, there's just like no relationship. It's not that being nice is bad uh, for, for leadership. Uh, it's just that, that they're not related. So, um, you know, uh, being sort of tough minded uh, is fine, um, but being friendly is fine too. Neither one is really uh, more effective. That's, that's at least what our data show in terms of building and maintaining these high performing teams. Certainly people say they prefer to work for a nice boss. So in that regard, there may be some sort of more downstream consequences um, in terms of, you know, maybe keeping the team intact. Uh, it might be important for that long term, but in terms of the team's productivity and effectiveness, we just don't see a, a close relationship. Okay. Um, so that also uh, triggered a thought about, you know, you always see these, um, you always hear stories of, 
uh, oh, the boss didn't show up and we were more productive than we ever were during <laughs> this day. Um, is, is, that an, is that any, in, in your opinion, is that any sort of argument for a sort of hands-off minimalist leader, uh, leader type? Or is it just the case that you're just removing someone that's being counterproductive? Yeah, well, one of the most, um, well, it could be both of those things, but, um, and, and, and I think as I round out this point, that'll make sense. Um, one of the most interesting ideas in the leadership literature going today um, is, is this work done on what's known as leadership versatility. And that's really the ability to um, do a couple of things at once, to be strategic, but also to be operational, to be people oriented, but to also be task oriented. Um, and leaders who can do both of these things can, can sort of um, uh, switch directions. Uh, one way to say it is that they can uh, guide the ship and then sometimes they get down on their hands and knees and swab the deck as well, right? So leaders who can do both of those things tend to be much more effective. And so I think in the case of your example, what we have is, you know, maybe that it, it, on that day, it's, yeah, it's removing someone who's toxic. And quite frankly, there's actually a lot of evidence for really toxic leaders um, causing a lot, lots of problems in organizations. Um, we, we estimate that about two thirds of managers are, uh, ineffective and should not be in their role, but are anyway. Wow. Um, and it's not just our data. This comes from lots of other data from lots of other people. Um, so so uh, th there's lots of that. So part of it could be that. Um, part of it could be that some of these, some managers are really micromanaging as well, right? So just not having them there staring over your shoulder uh, is, is what's really effective at, at getting the job done too, is that now nobody's here pestering me. Um, so there's lots of ways to go wrong. So we've talked about the sort of ways to go right, but there's lots of ways to go wrong as a leader. And of course, you know, that's one of the things that we, we help leaders work on. Talk, talk a little bit more about that. What, what are the, uh, what are the big no no's uh, as far as something a leader might do that would really, really uh, compromise the value of a team? Yeah, so, so our work around this area started with this guy, uh, John Bentz at Sears, who, who was hiring, he was hiring every manager at Sears stores all across the country for, for decades. And, you know, they all had good IQ test scores and, and he was just, man, you know, just managing, what, uh, monitoring their progress as managers and leaders uh, for a really long time. And about two thirds of them got fired at some point. They just were like, they're not effective and they had, they had to let them go. And he was really extensive and he cataloged all of the reasons that they got, you know, were let go. And we started looking, and this was before I started working here, but my colleagues started looking at these list of reasons and they said, you know, that list of reasons really looks an awful lot like the DSM-3, except in really much more subtle terms. So for example, um, you know, some of these managers get fired just because they uh, just couldn't keep their cool under pressure, would just get too hot headed. They're sort of emotionally volatile and explosive, right? So they, so they would get, they would get let go. Some of the managers just couldn't trust anybody, right? And they were just mistrustful of everyone. So, so they got let go. Um, some managers, like we talked about before, were way too slow making decisions. They're extremely cautious um, and, and were just afraid, to, afraid to, to, to make any mistakes. And so because they were so afraid to make mistakes, they never got anything done. Nothing ever progressed. So they got let go. Other managers micromanaged. Other managers were overconfident and, and took on too much. Um, there, there's just a whole we, – we, we classify um, 11 different um, what we call derailers 
um, and we measure people on these things and give them feedback on them, um, that, that managers can go wrong and, and really, um, uh, and really it, it leads to managerial failure and, and career, uh, career failure. Uh, now you mentioned working with, uh, these, you mentioned this corporate example, you mentioned working with some NFL hiring uh, processes. Um, my last, uh, question for you is what is, what is the overall state of, of using these types of personality assessments in, in the corporate world? Is it, is it become, is it just, is it growing? Do most of the companies incorporate some sort of, uh, some sort of personality assessment? Um, I have some experience in my analytics, uh, time, uh, looking at, at, at some sort of hiring tools. Um, a lot of it was focused around, um, these sort of, uh, virtual job tryout type things where you're, um, where you're putting, candidates through the ringer with a real real world scenario um, I noticed that it was a lot harder to pitch the personality type stuff it, it it tended to be taken as very very sexy but people were not really willing to 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 take on these personality measurements and strictly apply them to hiring what is what is the current state of affairs with with these types of assessments so what we find is a few things. One is that a lot of companies use personality assessments. We, we personally work with about 75% of the Fortune 500. Um, and there's obviously lots and lots of other companies out there that, that, that test publishers and, and personality, uh, personality assessment companies work with. Um, there's a lot of... Uh, uh, sort of hesitance I would have if I was like, if I'm an HR person and I was going to go work in, in, in uh, looking for personality assessments, um, you have to be really careful because, um, so if I was going to make a drug, let me, let me give you this example. If I was going to make a drug for, for, to, to help combat some disease, I would have to go through all kinds of testing. I would have to get approval from the FDA, show all of my data, show all of my work to, to get this drug approved. Um, so that is the, this is a heavily, that's a heavily regulated industry. The personality testing industry is completely unregulated. It's the wild west uh, of industries. So literally anyone can make a personality assessment and say our assessment works, our assessment's valid. They can say these things and nobody can hold them accountable for that, right? Um, and so the only, it's, you know, it's buyer beware kind of world. And so what's really critical, and we, we see lots of this is, is finding uh, a company that is um, grounded in science. They can show you their data. They can show you their results from the validity studies that they've done. And, and validity is just you know a, a fancy way of saying that the thing that you measured, the personality, actually predicted something you cared about. It actually predicted job performance. And um, the reality is lots of companies today that you can just find out on the internet, just Googling around, um, can't do that or they won't do that. They just say, well, you know, that's proprietary or they hide behind these kinds of things that aren't really necessary to hide behind. You know, we have proprietary information in Hogan too, but, um, and there's other companies that, that, that I'm not saying Hogan's the only one. There are other companies that also have proprietary information, but are regularly subject to review. We submit our materials to, to review boards. And so that's the thing I would really be careful of if I was, you know, in the HR world is making sure that I got something that I knew was high quality was, um, and there's really three things. One is that it actually predicts performance. 
Number two is that it's fair. It doesn't discriminate against, against job candidates in some, in some bad way. And then number three is, is that it's a cost effective in terms of what I'm looking for. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. I, I've had similar conversations in, in previous roles um, uh, where, where it was, you know, just talking about the, the necessary rigor and how you should properly apply these types of things. So, yeah, I totally agree with you there. Um, so <clears throat> to close, you probably uh, tell a lot of stories uh, as you present some of your material to corporations and, 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 other, and other leaders. Um, could you give me your perfect example of a leader? Who is your, who is your example that you like to go to that personally speaks to the, the qualities that you've discussed today? Yeah, so we, we get asked that question a lot, and um, you know there, there's lots of really good examples of, of highly effective leaders out there. The one that I've been talking most about recently, and partly because of the the COVID crisis and dealing you know with with you know leading an organization through a crisis, is this woman Tammy Jo Schultz. And again, what's what I think is nice about her is that I don't know that she would be classically seen as a leader. Um, this is a woman who you may remember a few years back, uh, I think about two and a half years ago, was the pilot on a Southwest Airlines flight. And this is the only Southwest Airlines flight that ever you know, lost the life of a passenger. This is when um, the uh, fan blade, part of the fan blade broke off on one of the wings and struck part of the plane. Uh, the window partially opened up and a passenger was partially um, sucked out. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. that passenger uh, uh, died. Mm -hmm. um, but there's the audio call is available you can just look up Tammy Jo Schultz audio call on YouTube and listen to this audio call. And to think about what's going on on that airplane, think about how the passengers are reacting, think about how the flight attendants are reacting. And then you hear her, you hear her voice, you hear her talking to the tower, you hear how calm she is, how um, in the moment she's staying, you hear, you can even hear in the tone of her voice that she's thinking about those people on the back of the plane, right? This isn't about her. This is about doing my job. This is about those people um, that I'm working with, that I'm working for. And, um, you know, under this highly stressful situation and, 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 and to land this plane with, with no trouble at all, um, you know, you just think about somebody like that and you, you know what, that's, that's what we really like in a leader is someone who has those kinds of qualities that can look at a crisis, um, remain calm, can make effective decisions in the face of that crisis, um, can give us a path forward, right? You know what I mean? You know, um, can, can um, you know, reassure us that it's going to be okay and, and, and can get the job done. And that's what, that's what I, I think she really exemplified through that. Now, I, I don't think she thinks of herself as a leader, but I think this is a really nice example where we go, yeah, but this is the kind of person we, we want to have leading. You can only hope that all of our, all of the pilots that, that are flying commercial airlines have that level of composure. <laughs> Absolutely. Ho hopefully that's the case. Um, well, thank you very much for joining me today. I, I really enjoyed talking about leadership. Um, thank you for, uh, for being so gracious with your time. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure and, and uh, happy to chat with you anytime, Ryan. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, if you like more information on the topic, uh, Ryan also contributes to a podcast called The Science of Personality. It's a personality podcast. 
Uh, you can visit the scienceofpersonality.com or visit uh, iTunes or Spotify to download new episodes. I would also recommend checking out episode two of this podcast where I discuss personality uh, research with uh, Dr. Bell Cooper. Once again, don't forget to rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Also, uh, visit us on our Facebook page and click follow or like. Uh, and also, you can find us now on Instagram at Why Do We Do That Podcast is the Instagram handle. Uh, and also, Twitter at WDWDTPod uh, for Twitter. And we are also now on YouTube. So, head over to YouTube if you prefer to listen to podcasts that way and hit subscribe on our YouTube channel. You can also email me at why do we do that podcast at gmail.com. This is Dr. Ryan Moyer, hoping that you found some answers to the question, why do we do that? <laughs>